episode two of Jock Talk Podcast, an Independence Associates production. I am here with my co-host, Adam, and our featured guest this week, Megan Anderson and Joe Lamar. What's up, guys? How's it going? It's going. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. So this week's episode is all about adaptive sports and what you can do to stay active, not only during the quarantine, but, you know, to create an active lifestyle for people with disabilities. And just as a recap, for those that don't know, this podcast is everything sports, life, politics, and disability, and everything in between. So let's get going with the questions, Adam. Absolutely. So we just wanted to get a little background on how both of you got involved with adaptive sports. Um, Megan, let's start with you. Um, I have spine bifida, so I was born with uh, my disability. Uh, I didn't use a wheelchair or anything like that until I was about 10. Um, Didn't really want to do anything in a wheelchair. I always wanted to walk. Um, So I played a lot of basketball, like stand-up in community leagues, things like that that and I was a big swimmer um, because the doctors had suggested swimming as like a form of physical therapy and all that stuff so I was part of the Cape Cod Swim Club prior to doing anything with adaptive sports. I learned about adaptive sports when I went to Mass Hospital School um, for a sports picnic type of thing that they had going on and kind of got involved with like a lot of sports there where like they had uh, the basketball jumped in that and realized that I could play basketball much easier in a wheelchair than trying to struggle with like keeping up with my um, peers while running in leg braces. Um, I also learned really like early on in that, that when they put me in the swimming pool that like I dominated in the adaptive swimming, like with, uh, with that, because I had been competing against uh, able-bodied players or swimmers up until that point. Um, So I got involved in that and like had a look back. So that was when I was, I think 11. Um, started competing in national competitions and came home with medals in track and field, swimming, archery, table tennis, all the sports. I did them all when I was younger. Um, now I'm mainly doing basketball. Um, I've done wheelchair softball. I've done tennis. Kind of like I also do. I'm on the lacrosse team down here in Virginia now. Um, so I've done all sorts of sports. I've competed in them. Um, I went, um, I competed for the U.S. in Scotland when I was 13 and came home with a couple gold medals there. Um, Swimming kind of died off for me because I had a spinal fusion when I was 14 and couldn't really move the same way in the water. Um, But I now do a lot of coaching and working with kids and want to give back to the adaptive, like, and disabled community now because it meant so much to me like at growing up and it gave me more than just sports it gave me like a community of people that were similar to me so that's what i do now i still compete but like i want to give back to the kids more so, yeah that's, that's an basically interesting it. story i think mass hospital school was a catalyst for a lot of people to start uh, adaptive sports and i think the good thing about them was like you said, they offered all of the sports, table tennis, archery. Uh, so it was a great place to start for many people. Yeah, I mean, for me, 
it was an interesting experience, but you know, it definitely gave me my first little toe in the water as it was. And, uh, you know, here I am years later doing a podcast because of my knowledge in sports, but we'll go to Joe at this time and give him the floor. Hey everybody, Joe Lamar here. Um, I actually became an amputee. Sorry, did I just drop everybody? I actually became an amputee back in 1990 when I was 18 years old. Um, I was always an athlete, always into running. Um, I was told by doctors when I developed this tumor that I'd have a hard time running, walking, never mind running. So I got involved in running in high school. I was actually New England indoor champ in the mile. And then after that, I had my foot amputated literally three weeks after winning the New England title in the mile. Um, I got involved in racing as an amputee with a prosthetic. You know, everybody says the Blade Runners now. I was one of those first Blade Runners um, out there and competed around the world. Was in the Paralympic Games in 1992, won the 400-meter uh, run competed for eight years in track and field, finally concluding in Sydney, Australia in 2000, winning a bronze medal in the 800. Um, in between there, numerous world and international titles, you know, between the 400 and 800 meter runs. So it was some uh, fun stuff. But then I had a little bit of a, a low after uh, 2000, had those competitive juices still going and then finally in 2008 got involved in wheelchair basketball as well as wheelchair softball was on team usa's uh 2016 and 2017 world championships for wheelchair softball and again it's it's sports man if you're a competitor sports are for everyone so joe i know you talked about being an athlete before your amputation can you talk a little bit about the challenges of transitioning from able-bodied sports to adaptive sports and kind of how you handled that? Um, obviously, for me, it was, it was really hard. Um, I was 18 at the time. I thought I was invincible, to totally be honest and everything. I didn't think, you know, I knew it was going to happen and everything. I knew I was going to lose the foot. So you go through all the emotions of, you know, denial, regret, you know, finally, you know, being angry at the world especially at that age you know you're transitioning from high school to college and it was something that was definitely difficult to get a grasp on but uh i finally came to accepting that yes i am physically challenged came across an article actually in uh runner's world about the paralympics and looked at their times and everything and said i could do that now and i was in a you know everyday running in it. And from from there, it just took off. I went up to my prosthetist and I said, hey, you need to make me a running leg. And literally within a year, I was Paralympic champion. You know, so I made the adjustment very well. I kept my same work ethic that I had in high school and carried it over into the uh, Paralympics and everything else. So it was pretty smooth for me. 
you know, after accepting that I was, uh, you know, an amputee now. Yeah, absolutely. For you, almost, it sounded like a natural transition, almost. So I think that, you know, that sounded like it helped you a little bit. Well, I, I wouldn't say anything's natural about it. It was definitely, you know, challenging times and everything else. Like I said, you know, there, people did not want to be around me at certain times throughout that <laughs> whole ordeal, you know? Understandable. But <laughs> what I meant was uh, you were still able to compete in the same sport. Right. Right. And, and that's something that actually helped me too, especially when you go and look at nowadays people, you know, as a groups, we find it hard to get sponsorship and everything else. I was one of the first amputee athletes that got sponsored by major shoe companies. You know, Saucony and New Balance both picked me up for certain amounts of time and everything else and were paying for everything and giving me equipment and stuff like that and under contract with them. And it was only because I had come from the able-bodied world. You know, I know that for a fact. It was only because I came from the able-bodied running world. I had already had ins with some of the uh, people in those companies and everything else. And that's the only reason. You know, it's difficult today for any of us to find sponsorship, unfortunately. Well, Joe, that's something we will get into later on in this discussion. But, Meg, talk about that transition for you. Did I get cut off earlier? Because, like, my whole thing dropped on me. So. No, you're good. Okay. Um, the transition for me... Like, like I said, like I was doing sports like before because I like I have three older brothers and an older sister. So like everybody's like very active in my family. Um, like I think the transition was good for me and it was at the right time because like around like the 10 year old like age range is like when you start not being able to keep up with your peers when you have like a mobility dis like issue. Um, like before that, like, it's not like so super competitive that like you can't participate in and do all those things. So like around that time was when I couldn't like run up and down the basketball court and keep up with everybody. So like when somebody showed me like that, uh, wheelchair to play basketball was just a piece of equipment. I was like, Oh, this is great. Like before that, like you kind of like have it in your head. And a lot of people still do that. Like being in a wheelchair is makes you more incapable of doing things when it's really not the case that actually made me like be able to do more stuff. And I started using like the, the wheelchair, not only in sports, but also doing like longer distance walking. So like I could actually do more stuff because I wasn't as tired. So like the transition was, was pretty easy cause I had been struggling trying to keep up with my, my peers, like, at home because like even though I had been in the Cape Cod Swim Club like I wasn't winning any medals um, swimming against like people in the Cape Cod Swim Club because I didn't kick like it's really hard to compete against like a, another swimmer if you don't kick but um, the uh, when I jumped right into like adaptive sports like I immediately went to like the the junior national competition and came home with like nine medals my first try so it was it was like good timing on my part and it also opened up a world uh, to like 
other people that were similar to me and I didn't feel like sort of, not that I felt like an outcast in, in my school system because I was the only one with a disability, but like there was nobody else going through a similar experience. So like transitioning to adaptive sports, like allowed me to learn how to do a lot of things from other people that were doing that already. So that's why I think like adaptive sports is, is so much more than just sports. It, it like just teaches people how to get through the world and adapt to things. Like you get tips and tricks on things. You like find people that like have similar experiences. Like you can relate to people that you might not have ever like met before. And like Joe has said, like he's traveled the world like with all this stuff. Like I haven't necessarily gone international too much besides that swimming. But like I've gone all over the United States competing in things. So like I wouldn't have met half the people that I know, like if it wasn't for adaptive sports. Right. You know, that's a great point because that that brings up something. A lot of people ask me, you know, if if you could uh, you know, go back and somehow change your circumstance and not be in a wheelchair and walk again, would you give up everything that you've gone through? And I tell people no, honestly, just for that straight reason, because I've seen so many things because of my disability. Like you alluded to, I've traveled, you know, the world, probably not as many places as you guys, but, you know, I've been to places that I never would have imagined. I've met people that I never would have met if I hadn't had the disability. So it definitely opens up a lot of doors. I mean, definitely from my perspective, you know, sports was more than just competition. Having been born with a disability similar to Meg, you know, I was trying to find a way to fit in and sort of conform to the mainstream you know mindset because you know she's right a lot of people still today think that being in a wheelchair somehow limits your abilities and joe you and i you know obviously we go back a ways and you know people know that i looked up to you you know as a kid trying to find a way to get involved with that and here i am you know some 25 years later I went to college for mainstream coaching and I've made my mark, you know, both in the mainstream world and wheelchair basketball. So, you know, Adam, you're right too. Like I wouldn't change a thing either. No, I don't think any of us would. <laughs> Absolutely. So Joe, your, your circumstance is kind of interesting. You kind of have your toes in like the adaptive world and, you know, um, able body sports. Um, and you kind of talked about how because of your past as a runner, uh, able-bodied runner, that afforded you sponsorships and things like that. Um, do you think that – do you see – so you, you play basketball and, you, you know, you play in a wheelchair, but you walk. Um, when you travel with the, the wheelchair basketball team, do you see them being treated differently than how people treat you in the same settings? Yes, I think one is because of my size, though. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think anybody is going to open their mouth against me, honestly. Um, but taking it back and to go and reflect a little bit on what you guys have said about, you know, like being in a wheelchair and everything else. I was one that, you know, that eight year period that I was doing nothing, I was always going to the... Uh, you know, basketball games at the VA and everything, thinking the entire time, nope, 
why do I want to do this? I don't belong in a wheelchair and everything else. But uh, Mac, everybody knows, you know, went and rolled over my feet one day and said, nah, jump in and try it and everything. So I tried it and I was like, wow, these guys are handing it to me. So I kept coming back until I got good at it. And again, I had those competitive juices always there. And I found out everybody was accepting of me in that group. You know, everybody that was in a wheelchair was accepting of me being able to walk, sitting down and competing with them. And that's something that was a rarity that actually brought me a lot of joy getting back into sports and everything. You know, Megan, Joe talked about, or, you know, with Adam about how people potentially treat him differently, I guess because of his size, although he's not really that intimidating. Um, but, I mean, let, let's be honest. How are things different potentially for you from a female perspective versus, you know, a male perspective, both as an athlete and as a coach. I mean, I personally, you, you know, you and I have had many conversations about this. I've gone back and forth as to how different it really is until I actually saw some of it happening. So talk about that. Like just as like the female perspective? Yeah. Well. And how it might be different, you know, in terms of female versus male through um my entire time of doing adaptive sports especially like on like the team sports specifically like i've a lot of times been the only female on the team so like i'm i'm very used to it now and when i was up in um in massachusetts i don't think it was quite as I don't necessarily think that most of the guys saw me as like lesser than when I was out there on the court playing. Um, but I've also had like a lot of experience. I know what I'm doing out there. Maybe I'm not like as intimidating, but like when we're playing, like, especially as a, <laughs> what are you shaking your head for Joe? You um, crashed all of us and put us all onto the ground. Well, yes, but, like, you guys as my teammates know this. But, like, when, when we're competing, like, I don't know if you guys pick up on it, but, like, when we're playing certain teams, especially the teams that don't play our team, like, too often, like, immediately they see, like, oh, you don't need to pay attention to the girl. Like, leave the girl. The girl's not going to do anything. That's often the, the impression – in adaptive sports if there's that lone female it's like oh it's like the token girl we're gonna put her in there all you have to do like you don't even need to guard her you don't need to do anything you can get right by her um like i never really got that from any of the guys i was playing with like up in massachusetts or even like in new england like connecticut doesn't treat me like i'm like a helpless person out there on the, the court and even like the new york teams for the most part don't like do that but we played them so regularly when i moved down to virginia <laughs> It's a whole different like world down here. Um, the my coach that I have, like on certain games, like he immediately like if there's a girl on it, there he like his first thing is like nobody pay attention to the girl. Like whether the girl's scoring most of the points or not, like he he will sit there and say like you don't need to pay attention to the girl, and then look over. And I'm sitting next to him. He's like, oh, I don't mean like you, Megan. No offense. I'm like. And 
our team has gotten our, our butts kicked by a predominantly like female Canadian team. And like the, the view from like the guys a lot, like, especially like the older guys, like they're like, Oh, like we shouldn't be losing. Like it's the girl, like they're females. Like we should not be, I'm like, they just won the whole championship. Like, but you're still talking about like how it's our fault because the guys couldn't beat the girls. So there is like a weird like dynamic when you're playing in adaptive sports because it is co-ed and especially on the team ones that um, you're going to get that sort of perspective from people that like you're lesser than, like even though you have the ability to, to, to play just as well. And the good thing about adaptive sports in my mind is that like you have that classification system which kind of evens things out, not only for like varying disabilities, but it also kind of evens the playing field sometimes with like the female players, because, you know, just because you're female, I kind of, well, females also drop down a classification for whatever reason when they're playing on a male team. Um, but what I see as is like, you know, the classification system like allows more opportunities for the females in some respect, because like, coaches put them in because like they fit like the point system that needs to be out there. And the benefit sometimes of having the females is that like, like right now I'm a class three normally. If I play with the guys, it drop down to a class two. So if you're doing the classification system and like want points out there on the floor, you can have a class three as myself like out there, but I'm really only a class two on the floor because of the classification system. So Adaptive sports kind of helps out stuff, but you still have those like mindsets from certain people that like as a female, like you, you can't do stuff. And what I see like, cause I see a lot of like girls playing in the junior league. There's like a ton of females playing in the junior league, but somehow along the way, like from junior ball to adult ball, all the females disappear. <laughs> which is a shame. And I know there's various reasons for it, but like, I also see, cause I, I help run a, a women's team and there's very few women's team, especially on the East coast. Um, so you have a few women on, like you have a woman on like a, a men's team, but you only have one or two like per each men's team. So you have to kind of combine them and like, you don't get a chance to, to practice together and what I find really difficult with the women's like team that we have is that like the women that you do have playing like on a on men's teams like they're playing on those men's teams but they're not getting any playing time and the the men's teams themselves are not really teaching the ladies how to play so if since the women's division team like on the east coast is not having like uh, any of the females practicing because like my team is spread out from basically Massachusetts all the way down to Virginia we have like girls in states all the way up and down so we're not practicing together the, the ladies aren't necessarily getting the instruction from the men's teams that they're they should sometimes like they'll like go practice with like the junior teams because the junior team coaches will take the time to actually like coach a, a female as opposed to the men's team where they're like oh we already have all these guys. We don't really need to instruct these guys. So like a lot of times the ladies are just getting out there and like last minutes of the game and like people are just sort of letting them shoot. Nobody's going to learn how to play a game by somebody letting them shoot. Um, 
so I think it's really hard, especially as an, uh, an adult female with a disability, to start doing some of these team sports where they're, they're co-ed. Because if you haven't had that instruction from the junior level and learned all that stuff, in, in some cases, it's very difficult to get the proper instruction and in, like coaching from coaches, like if you're the only female on that team. And it takes like a certain type of attitude, like to stick with it and like deal with all of the, the, uh, the BS that goes on with like having to play on a men's team and be the only female and all that stuff. And like some of the ladies just don't want to deal with it. So they just quit. And it's a shame because like, I know enough ladies along like up from new England down here that we could have like multiple teams, but they've gotten so frustrated playing with the guys over the years that they've just quit because it's, it's not worth it. Whereas like, I am kind of a, a gym rat and want to be in the gym all the time. So I want to play. So like, I don't really care if like people like Joe are giving me a hard time out there. Like I'm still going to go out there and play, but so. Yeah. yeah that's an interesting perspective. Um, I obviously can't speak to what you've experienced as a female, but I know in my playing career, playing with females has upped my level of playing, uh, especially when I played at the University of Arizona. The female team there was so much better than the male team in a sense that they would be a lot more technical. They yeah. they would let their egos go. A lot of times, I know Joe and Brian know this, uh, Men are very ego-driven. They want to be the ones to carry up the ball. They want to be, I'm the post guy. I'm the shooter. I'm the dribbler. I'm the point guard. But in, in female teams, they're so technical. They communicate. They, they do everything from a basketball sense to a T, especially from what I saw at the University of Arizona. And um, a lot of times I played, you know, for U of A, and I also played for the Tucson Lobos which is, you know, their community team. And we would play the U of A female team and they would kick our ass, you know? Why? Because they were faster. They would set up the teacup defense. They would, they would have a plan and they would execute that plan and it wouldn't fall apart. Um, you know, so from my experience, um, I love playing against females because it would, it would, you know, allow me to, you know, showcase my speed and stuff like that, that females are really good at, you know? Um, I played with Jen Poist, who's a Paralympic female accomplished basketball player. I learned some of my best things from her. Um, so, you know, it's sad that you've experienced a lot of these things, but uh, from a male perspective, I like playing with f females. And I think that, you know, uh, juniors should be more blended. And it's kind of disheartening that they're not transitioning from junior well, the, the collegiate the junior the juniors are very like i'll give you because i coached the the junior team down here so i've this is my second year coaching and the first year like, we had we only had six players five of them were guys and then we had one lone female this year we had a lot of like because we had a lot of seniors and people left so my team now is mainly all girls and then we have two guys on the team so there's a lot of like females out there but like the kind of the the mindset <laughs> some like girls minds is is completely different than guys so like if they go on to college ball and all that stuff I think they stay with basketball but like when you have like any like junior girl player that's not necessarily going to school that has like a, an adaptive like program going on I think that's where you kind of lose like the ladies in like wheelchair sports because there has been 
especially in basketball, like there, there's been a few of the girls down here that like went from junior ball and they showed up to the adult team and like played for a couple of things, but like couldn't deal with the coaches like sort of sexist attitude and quit, but they still really want to play ball. But I think like with the female like basketball, like um, thing, like if you have played on a women's team and you have the, the chance to go to like, like college for it and play, like, you have like a lot of like great players out there and any of us that have been playing for a long time, like have the, like, the technical like um, knowledge. And like you said, they do play really technical and they, they communicate and they, they play better as a team, which is what has kind of made like our women's team. Like, even though we're stretched from Massachusetts down to Connecticut and we don't practice, we get together, like some of us meet each other, like at the beginning of a tournament, but we seem to play really well as a unit, even though we just met the person five minutes ago because everybody has that like technical and like has learned like the basic skills for the most part, except for anybody that's brand new. So you can jump in there and like know how to play with those guys because you know, like how to do the teacup, you know, how, to, how you're supposed to be playing. And it doesn't matter who's out there with you as long as you're communicating. And I think like, that's the good thing about playing on like, all female teams sometimes because you have that sort of like a lot of them just don't have the ego that you have to deal with like you said but yeah unfortunately on the east coast there's no like the only two women's team right now on the east coast is out of charlotte north carolina and then our team that's technically based out of new york but not really because i'm in virginia but it's run from like i i run it with one of the because we have junior players on our women's team i run it with like one of the junior parents who's in philadelphia but we're underneath the wheelchair sports federation like umbrella out of new york so it's all really complicated but like those are the only two women's team on the east coast so when we play we haven't even played any women's teams like we just play the the d3 guys so real quick you brought up something that's interesting you said that females kind of feel like they are being pushed away almost from wanting to compete uh, in basketball. And it made me think of something because I've experienced some of, you know, if you talk about Tatiana McFadden, if you talk about um, Caitlin Verfwith, who's like a champion tennis player, but she's also a really, really good basketball player, much like Tatiana McFadden. She's a really, really good basketball player. I remember going to a camp at Illinois when I was 12 years old and that was the first time I met Tatiana and she was so good at basketball, but her heart wasn't in it. And, the, and she got upgraded to, uh, you know, the next level because she was at that next level. But um, it almost makes me wonder, like she could have probably been a better basketball player than she was in track, but you're crazy. <laughs> it's crazy to sound, but she's a, she's a great basketball player. She could have been a Paralympic basketball player, but Part of me wonders, was she pushed away from playing basketball? Uh, I remember she played with the Bennett Blazers, um, and I played against her as a junior with the Junior Celtics. She played with Jen Poise. They were awesome. Um, but part of me wonders, was she pushed away from playing basketball because of these sexist attitudes? And if that's the case, then maybe that's the reason why female, bas- female wheelchair basketball isn't bigger than it is because – I don't necessarily think that's just- Tatiana's experience because I'm guessing she just had to choose what – Right. So you and she to went for the money, which there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. 
But I, I think it's more so that people are, like women are getting pushed away when they're, they, they're not going on that college route where they're sort of have to like choose and focus on something at a certain point. Cause if you go into like, like I said, like a female, like college program, like I think you have more of those ladies still continuing to play. But like what I sort of see is that like, if you have like a, a, a woman that got injured later in life and didn't have like that junior program or get, or have that college experience, some of those like ladies are getting pushed out of like teams because of whatever attitudes like are going on. And it's not just sexist attitudes. Like sometimes like, it's just like the, like the egos, they can't stand with like the guys because they're not getting like a, a chance on things. Like, I've heard some stories like over this past season of like ladies that have been sort of unceremoniously let go from teams for whatever reason. And I'm like, that's a shame. There's so few women playing in wheelchair basketball, like that you like the team should be like trying to, to develop them more and not all of them are doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it, I guess what I was trying to get at, is there's other opportunities for people with disabilities other than basketball. And it's hard to, it's hard to hone one thing if you're good at everything, you know? So sometimes you have to choose what you want to do, which isn't a bad thing. No. I mean, listening to this whole, you know, segment of the discussion brings one thing to my mind and that is, I guess from a coach's perspective, because let's be honest, that's what I am, that's what I do, whether it's coaching life or whatever, is, you know, the one thing that translates from able-bodied sports to wheelchair sports and vice versa is, you know, the women, I hate, you know, I hate to say this so as not to hurt anybody's ego in the room, but women are more coachable. And I've always said that I've always wanted to coach women more than men in the long term because they present less challenges in terms of, you know. Not all of them. <laughs> not all of them, but a, but a lot of them. And the funny thing is, you know, we can talk all day about the differences between able-bodied sports and, you know, wheelchair sports and the differences they have. But the one thing that is common is that the women are oftentimes more approachable because they're more technically sound, like Adam said. So. I mean, I think it's like, and just going with basketball, like I know they're like, cause individual sports and all that stuff are like, anybody can do it and you don't have to compete with like somebody on your team, like having a bad attitude towards you. But, like, just basketball. Like, if you look at the women's division for the NWBA, there's only 11 women's team throughout the country. Like, 11 compared to, like, how many, like, Division Three or Division Two or Division One teams are there. Like the, like, the women's division is so small. And the women's division is not ever included in, like, the, the big national events like every other sport, like, team is and division is. Women's has its own separate nationals because they can't figure out how to like incorporate women's division into the the nationals where division three and division two and all that are because like you have the women's players playing on women's teams but also playing on junior teams or 
like division three or division two teams. So like in, in trying to get them into like that national like um, tournament is impossible because they'd have to choose between like what team they're going to play on if there's a conflict. And like Joe and Brian can attest to this, that I've been to plenty of tournaments where I'm playing on a, playing like 10 games in a row because like I'm playing on a division two team, but also on a women's team. And like, somehow like my schedule doesn't like conflict, but that also means I have no breaks because I'm playing on a women's team and then playing on the men's team. And depending on what men's team I'm playing on, like I get a lot of like playing time and then I'm playing like 40 minutes a game on the women's team that we have because I'm one of the most experienced players. So like, there, there's like there's a lot of different challenges especially playing on like the the team sports and like I've done like tennis like tennis is easy like I don't need to like worry about like anything else but like even certain tennis tournaments like you have to go in there and there's not a women's division it depends on like how big the tennis tournament is so you're still like you're competing against all the men and I have no problem competing against like the men like I've been, like I said I've been doing it most of my life so like it doesn't bother me but I do know that other females don't have the same mindset as me because I've heard it from like teammates on my women's team that they wish that we were only playing other women's teams and they don't want to play the division three like games but like also like in order to play the other women's teams you have to travel further like like, it's not as simple, like, oh, we're just going to go down to Philadelphia and play this game and, like, come back. You have to actually get on a plane and travel somewhere. Right. And I think a lot of it is a regional problem. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed the East Coast doesn't do as well as the West Coast and even uh, in Texas as far as inclusion. I know that there's a lot more involvement for females on the West Coast, especially in California and Arizona. Mm-hmm. Well, that would bring me to the next question that I thought of, which was how could we, or what could we suggest to improve the exposure of adaptive sports? I guess this is a two-part question. There's so much in the way that mainstream sports or able-bodied sports are. I mean, because ultimately, for me, that's the benchmark of when sports are really going to be Granted, right now we would take just about anything because we have nothing. But you know, what changes? That's all about money. That's all about money. It's all about money too. But like, since I've moved to to Virginia, like, what I find interesting is that, and even up in New England, there, like, there, there's still a whole bunch of people in the like the disabled world that has no idea that adaptive sports exists. So the fact sure. that like in the disabled world, like people don't even know it exists. Like it's hard to say that anytime soon, like it's going to be mainstreamed into like everything else. The thing is, here in the U.S., we're still a third world country when it comes to this. We don't give the respect to the Paralympians that they deserve. Okay, we don't give the sponsorship. Go and look at, you know, the percentage of how many of our Paralympians right now are actually able to live off of sponsorship. I'd say you probably have a handful of them. But you go and look at the Olympic counterpart, okay, and it's like 98% go and are able to live off of sponsorship and everything else. 
So we're not getting the respect. Yet you go to a country like Australia, they go and pretty much have Paralympians on the same, you know, pay scale as their able-bodied Olympians. It's, it is, it's all about money. You know, you want to talk about exposure, they show events on TV in other countries that are Paralympic events. We don't do that here unless it's the Paralympic Games every two years. And then you have companies that'll go, NBC will say, oh, we showed 80 hours. Well, in reality, you showed 80 hours of nonsense. You only showed five or six hours of sports, okay? And then most of the time you're repeating the same sports, same events that you want highlighted because the US did good in those. But you didn't show any and all of the rest of the Paralympic Games. It's a fact, it's all about money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it is the cultural mindset too, because you talked a little bit about uh, basketball in Europe. Um, In Europe and other places, people are coming to watch wheelchair basketball and they're not disabled. They're able-bodied and they're interested, you know, and it's, it's the mindset in America that people with disabilities are stigmatized that we should be looked down upon and we should feel pity towards them. And why would we want to watch them compete in sports? Because that's, it's not athletic to them, you know, so we need to change the mindset. But the way to break that mindset and everything is by going and bringing one of the great things to do is have your Olympic counterpart jump in a wheelchair and play wheelchair basketball and give you their respect. Okay. Right. Showing and televising that stuff would be unbelievable. Yeah, Joe. You know, the, University of Arizona, the University of Arizona used to do this thing called lame for a day. And basically what it was was the U of A men's basketball team, the able-bodied basketball team, would get in the wheelchairs and they would play the wheelchair basketball team. And it was exactly. so popular, but you know, uh, you know, political correctness and things like that, the event stopped, which sucks, but that's what needs to happen. And people loved it. It's absolutely awesome. because that's the only way adaptive sport athletes will get that respect. Well, I also think that like just going on basketball, like down here, we do a lot of like, um, halftime shows at colleges. What I think we need to do, like, when we have the opportunity for those, is that we need to be showcasing the best, like, basketball that we can during those. Because you don't get a chance to, like, sort of talk to people, like, about, like, what your program is. Whereas, is and sometimes with those, what was that? Is it televised? Um, I'm not sure. I, I know there's, like, some of the, the news, like, things. I don't know if, like, they're doing the televised, like, things on everything. But, like, I also, like, in even on any of, like, these wheelchair basketball things where we have exhibition games, like, anywhere, we're not necessarily putting on, like, the best, like, wheelchair basketball show that, like, we can. We're kind of making it, like, oh, like, we're doing a fun thing, and it kind of becomes, like, a novelty, and it's not showing that it's, like, a real sport sometimes. Like, we need to take all those opportunities and be, like, this is a real sport. Like, you guys need to take it seriously and all that stuff even if it is a small like group setting, because like if you're just showing like wheelchair basketball is like, Oh, just jump in this thing. And it's kind of just like this fun little like game. Like, I don't think that's getting wheelchair basketball, like the, the respect it deserves. 
Right. A lot of times it devolves into like a Harlem Globetrotter wannabe-esque thing where people are launching threes and trying to do behind the back passes and it's kind of like a little novelty. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You're right. And I'm not saying everybody's doing that when they're doing exhibition games, but like I do find that like when teams do have the opportunity to do them and that we're not taking advantage to the best of our like ability to like really showcase what type of like what a real sport some of these things are. And I think part of that is an ego thing. They want to show to crowds that you can hit a three and things like that. Sorry, my dog's obnoxious. <laughs> Quarantine problems. Um, but what needs to be done with those think, exhibitions and everything, those, th- those types of events like that, you need to go and explain to the crowd what's going on. Go and play the first five minutes of real basketball against them so that they don't even make it over half court. You know, show them how challenging of a sport it is and then go and let them enjoy it. Have that other moment of the activity as being, yeah, now you guys can go. Oh, yeah. No, I I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Like, I think it needs to be enjoyable for the people, like, to try it out. But, like, if you're only doing the whole thing as, like, just, like, just screwing around, like, people don't take it seriously. Right. And you know how we do the Joshua School in Quincy and everything else. Oh, yeah. We go and we play it hard right away. Tell them, no, you're not getting over half court, you know. And then they really understand, oh, this is difficult. You know, it is explained to them at exhibitions that we do up here. Well, I mean, you and I both know you love to talk trash, and it also is that added benefit of creating, you know, a camaraderie the group that we have. If we show them that it's, you know, right from the get go, then that's when we earn their respect. And that goes back to what I was saying before is, you know, certain people may look at us and go, what's he doing going, you know, hard at us right should out we, of the gate? Well, that's can we tell Ash that he needs to hit mute, not just shut off the video? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know. Oh, yeah. Good that job. goes back to earning the respect. Because I know when we did the thing at Bridgewater, the guy um, that played for me his last year, Keon, you guys were going back and forth afterwards, but he told me when the whole thing was over, like, you know. Just like a real game. Right. Mm-hmm. We do the same thing in Able Body Ball. Yeah. You know, we talk trash with each other in Able Body Ball. Why stop it in the real game of, you know, wheelchair ball? It's not good. None of that attitude changes. I think the one thing that really needs to be changed and really needs to be looked at is you go to other countries adaptive sports and i'm not talking about adaptive PE. i'm talking about adaptive sports that we've all played and coached that's all you know incorporated automatically into the school curriculums so that kids are growing up with that in their mindset whereas here it's very much still a foreign concept or not even a foreign concept a concept that's not even really thought of again that's that's only in a couple of countries right now you know and again that's all money as well because you need money to 
purchase the equipment for the able-bodied kids to go and jump into wheelchairs and everything else. See, I, I was kind of fortunate growing up that my school system allowed me to like bring an extra wheelchair into gym classes and have somebody else do the entire gym class from my perspective in a wheelchair and they had to adapt and do all that. And I taught them how to, to, to play certain like activities and games and sports and stuff like through that. But I, kn I know that a lot of school systems don't allow that. There's but, no money. There's no funds. No, but like my school system didn't. But well, they bought. Well, they they didn't yeah. buy anything. But like they allowed me to bring it in. I don't know. Like now that like they would allow that because of like there's so much like stuff with liability now. Like I don't know if they would really like put say like oh like yeah just jump into this wheelchair and if you fall over you fall over like. With that though, it would be educating the parents first and foremost to go and advocate for their children, to go and push for them to be, you yeah. know, and, and that's, like, that's the other issue that's not happening right now. It, well, that's the issue too, but I also know like from when I was in high school that I had like teammates on the basketball team with me in the, in the junior division that like had parents that advocated in their school system and tried to get like them allowed to do certain things and the school system just wouldn't let it. Like we were fortunate that like our school system just like oh yeah great do it like they didn't push back like on me on doing stuff and i wasn't allowed to participate in pe when i got to high school yeah people so in, in some cases them. i don't even think it's a case where like parents aren't advocating for their kids like sometimes the school system like i don't know what it is like today necessarily but like um this is back in the 90s like i think i was very fortunate on a lot like what my school system was really allowing me to do and like I was on the the tennis team, and I do find it amusing that like they did say I could join, like try out for the basketball team. Like, but I'm sitting there, I'm like, you want me to try out for the basketball team as the only wheelchair? Like, like yeah, that doesn't make sense. But like they never like denied me from doing so. No, now looking at what's taking place with the uh, Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association, oh. as well as um, what other group what's i going to look at as well as others you know they're doing individual sports are easy enough that they're accepting you know at that level um with tennis track and field and swimming are definitely things that are going on now at the mia level um and again i, I wouldn't see any pushback or liability issues coming up because the state now rectifies it and recognizes it and you also have um probably like 18 to 20 other states that also have the individual sports being recognized right now at the state level so it is easier right now for kids who are physically challenged to get involved you know they just have to want to and realize that sports are out there for them there there's the breakdown right now too is that we don't push it enough it's not in the media you know everything that's in the media is always negative who puts positive stuff out there nobody i mean like down here they have a good amount of like news coverage that comes and like focuses on like sportable and like what they're doing and they tend to focus on the kids like programs but even with that like when 
supportable comes across kids with disabilities and like tries to recruit them they're like oh we've never heard of this it's like we didn't know this existed and the the challenge that i have with down here because like i'm used to always having to have been able, like having to travel to get to where i'm like competing like i lived on cape cod when i was growing up i tr i drove up to canton all the time to do adaptive sports so like traveling an hour or whatever isn't like a big issue for me whereas like here like sportable is out of richmond virginia and like you have like kids that are outside the richmond area and like sportable sometimes says like oh we're here to serve the richmond area so they're not necessarily looking for people outside they they have found them but then you also run into the, the problem with transportation issues so mm -hmm. and, and like it's it's always going to be a transportation issue like like i was fortunate enough to have parents that like would drive me to wherever and when my older siblings had their license they just sent me off with them but like not everybody has that chance and like unfortunately with adaptive sports like things are sort of regionally so people you have to travel for them mm -hmm. and it's there, there's always a lot of like barriers that are gonna stop like adaptive sports from like expanding like because of that and again it's it all comes back to money but this we, is why we go I would see. go ahead, Joe. We go and see here, you know. I'm also where the head of uh, helping out with adaptive sports in New England, and the youth groups that we have coming out of here, you know, yes, those kids do have to travel everywhere, you know, for different events. I mean, we have sled hockey, and then they're coming back and they're jumping in their cars and traveling an hour and a half to go and play basketball during the same day you know because it's during the same season and everything else those parents and everything else are still getting it done for those kids yeah but you know? that, that's what yeah. i'm saying there, there's certain types of parents that will do all that there's so many yeah. other kids out there that don't have that and that's what's getting missed but but where we're putting things we are doing the mainstream you know high dense uh areas and everything else you know so you do have programs out there that are pushing you know adaptive sports for all ages and all kids and everything and it's just the fact that yeah how do we get the message out there that's what we're not getting you know you have you have enough events going on you go and look at our calendar and everything else there are enough events going on in different events for anybody and everybody who's physically challenged that wants to go and do sport, you know, they just have to go and be made aware of it and show up. Well, I think what needs to happen is that like school systems need to be educated that like there's adaptive sports programs out there that they can tell kids that are in their school systems about that they can go to because the word isn't getting out there. Like, that there are all those things like we know there's all those like activities like and events going on because we're aware of the adaptive sports worlds right we we have it in the school systems in massachusetts i can speak for the only one i can all right we send out the newsletter it goes out to your athletic directors and principals you know but is it going the, down to the the student level the, or the parent level that's the stuff that you have to ask at the schools you know we also go though and we have the data of what school systems kids who are physically challenged are in. 
we also go and make it a point to hit up guidance counselors, those, um, you know, teachers who are special ed teachers and everything else working with kids who are physically challenged. So we do have that stuff going out there, but are the kids interested? You know, so the, in Massachusetts, I know we're doing our part to get oh, no, the kids and find the kids and try to get them involved. But I, I, and I think that Massachusetts has always had like a, a great sort of somewhat system of like getting the word out there and getting people involved. What I've noticed down here is that like they're, they're putting that like information out into like um, even say like spina bifida clinics at hospitals, whatever. But like th those kids aren't learning from it, from like that information going to the doctors and the PTs and OTs. It's like when they discovered Sportable, like they're like, oh yeah, we like those people never told us about it. So like the information is getting disseminated by the adaptive sports like uh, programs, but it's going to people that there's that middleman that's not necessarily getting that information to like the kids. And if it gets to the kids, like in a school, like if there's like somebody that has talked to a kid, is the kid then going home and talking to the parents? Like, the, like, cause you always have, to, if it, especially if it's kids, the parents need to be on board. Like whether the right. kid wants to do it or not, like the parent needs to be on board. Exactly, and there are too many variables. And you know, I also, but if the kid wants to do it, they're gonna get it done. Well, it depends on the age, <laughs> but, um, but I, I also find with here because since I've started working with the kids, like sometimes like the, there's limited like sports that like they have like specifically for youth, and I'm like, you know, some of these kids maybe don't want to play basketball, but they show up to these basketball programs, and like to me, I know that they have no interest that it's basketball, but they want to be playing with all their friends. Yep. Where I think like especially on like the youth level, like the younger like kids, like you need to have a more generalized like sports like day where like you can expose them to multiple sports. Well, I think with that too, they also want to go and just be around other kids with similar oh, yeah. abilities as they are. Well, I think ultimately it comes down to, as we've learned throughout this whole thing is money and exposure, which is why you know, going back to what we talked about earlier is I would encourage people to, you know, think about sponsoring adaptive sports programs. You know, put the money into the programs like you would any other program, whether it be a school or, you know, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts. You know, we, we should have the right and the privilege to participate in recreation at the same equal amount financially as other programs. So I think that's what this should really be about. Well, I also think the challenge should be to have those sponsors actually come out and participate as well. Give it a try. Realize that you're gonna be feeling it the next day and everything. That's something that, again, people don't get. We are athletes. It is a sport, all right? It's not just, oh, you're used to golfing and everything every day? All right, fine. Jump in a chair, play some basketball with us. Tell me how you feel the next day. 
you know, how are those arms burning and everything else? Can you lift your arm over your head and everything? Those are things that have to get done as well so that they can realize and understand, oh yeah, this is a real sport. They aren't just playing around. It's not just a game. That goes for getting like new participants in the sports too. Like sometimes you have to physically go get that person and bring them to it and make them try it. Like a lot of talk like about saying like, oh, we have like this like basketball thing for like a newly injured like person. Like they're like, oh yeah, that sounds great. But then you can't get them out. Like I, I feel like especially like Mac was great at sort of finding people. people and then like, thanks. what was that? rolling over people's feet thanks well yeah legs but like he he went to like spalding and stuff and like physically brought a number of athletes to like basketball in east boston and showed them like what it's like and got them out there and would like bring people to practices like to stuff like and that's what got people more involved because like i know plenty of people that have like just sort of run across somebody that's in a wheelchair or whatever and said like oh like this is great you should try it and they were like oh yeah that that's that, that sounds great yeah i'll do that but then you never see them like sometimes right. like, it goes to like getting those people out there and it's the same thing with like trying to get like sponsorship and being taken seriously like, you need to get people in there and trying like things and seeing stuff in order for people to be like oh yeah this really is a real sport mm-hmm. yeah well, part of the problem is media exposure um And I think, Megan, you were kind of alluding to this. Juniors get a lot of media exposure. Um, For example, Ryan Martin, you know, he's obviously doing good things with the junior Celtics. He has an in with with Juniors also get a lot more money thrown at them than Absolutely. But it's also a feel-good story, you know, to the news. um, Where, uh, you know, obviously there's a huge disconnect. Um, Brian's not getting any help from the Celtics for his Celtics team, you know, so – it, it kind of sucks because we're kind of in the same boat. The junior Celtics should be a catalyst for people to play on Brian's team, the Celtics. And like you said, there's that disconnect between juniors and adults. Yep. Cause what happens when those kids age out of the juniors has been my biggest question all along is, you know, it should be, you know, we talk about continuity of care in terms of healthcare and, you know, stuff like that. But for the junior Celtics, yeah, they're getting the money. They're getting the feel-good story. You know, Ryan Martin's doing wonderful things with that. Well, first of all, there's no junior Celtics right now. It's Ryan Martin's Trojans that are doing stuff with the Celtics. (laughs) Well, There There was a junior Celtics back in the day when there was a Massachusetts team. Right, but the Boston Celtics are calling it their Junior Celtics program. The Junior Celtics program is like the youth program in general that they've incorporated an adaptive like portion to it. Right, but that still you know brings me back to the central point of what happens when those kids age out. You know, if we talk about continuity of care, why why shouldn't athletics and fitness be you know prioritized in that too? Because that's where you see a lot of people, quite frankly, die off in terms of sports because they don't even know a team like the one that Joe and I work with. You know, they don't even know that we exist because we're not getting the same 
financial kickback. They do. They saw us in Connecticut. Well, here, here's my question on that, because I, I know Ryan very well. I've seen how he does his programs. He he makes sure that it's not all about basketball when he's dealing with, like, kids. He tells the kids what their opportunities are after, like, they graduate high school and go to things. Like, he makes them aware of, like, college programs. Exactly. He sets people up, like, on, like, what they should be doing with their life. And, like, so the continuity of care, like, through the Ryan Martin program, like, like I'm not worried about the kids going through Ryan Martin's program. The, the thing that you need to like take a, a look at in Massachusetts is where are all those kids in Massachusetts that aren't part of a program like Ryan's? Because there are a few Massachusetts kids in Ryan's program, but a majority of them are not Massachusetts. So it's a case where like I think there needs to be a similar program to Ryan's in Massachusetts for those kids that wouldn't be excluded from the junior Celtics program because they would be allowed to be part of it. Cause it's not exclusively to Ryan's, but Ryan is the only like junior team that's there now. Well, so, I think, yeah, I think honestly being completely transparent, I think the biggest problem in Massachusetts is uh, ever since Dick Crisofoli, you know, left mass hospital school, there is no adaptive program at mass hospital school and Mass Hospital School used to be the starting point for many newly injured um, people and people that have been injured their whole life or were born with injuries. That's how they learned adaptive sports. It started like losing it even before Dick left because Sorry. Massachusetts Hospital School started changing the um, structure, the clientele of like the patients that were in there. Since a lot of the kids that are born with disabilities or whatever are injured as like child children are now all mainstreamed into school systems, like you don't right. have them knowing about like ability like that. Right. So like I do agree that Dick Cristofoli did a lot for like junior adaptive sports in the um in the Massachusetts like area because like that's how I found out about it is through Dick and all those guys and I had the. Like before I moved to Virginia, I was working at Mass Hospital School and like was trying to keep their like little basketball program going, but it wasn't the same as it was like when I was competing or when you were competing there. Um, but at least we had a program where like the kids could do the stuff. But like after I left, like I think they completely got rid of the basketball because they didn't have anybody getting outside contacts for kids to bring them into the school to like sort of participate in it. And they didn't have the clientele or the, for lack of a better word, patients at Mass Hospital School like to, that could participate in a, like a wheelchair basketball program. A lot of their kids there are more medically complicated. So like you can't do the same type of adaptive sports program through there, but they have like a phenomenal like facility that allows them to do all those multiple sports. And like, like to me growing up that was that was like the best part is that you could go there and pretty much do any of the sports like down here we have like the big organization but we don't have our own facilities so like when you're doing like basketball you have to go to whatever gym like the the adult team plays at a completely different gym than the um the junior team our rugby team has to find a different gym some thing like sometimes when we're doing seasons like week to week we don't necessarily have the same gyms 
So, like, I think Massachusetts needs, like, people to, like, different organizations, like the adult basketball teams, to work with, like, somebody like Joe Walsh and trying to work together to get an, a junior program that goes into the adult program, right? I'm like, you work with him, Joe, right? Is there, is yes. there, is there any links between the, the junior stuff that they're doing and putting on for basketball, like to go into the adult ones? Uh, again, there's, there's always the connections are sent out from adaptive sports in New England. They're sent out whatever direction these kids want to go in we find anything and everything for them. Joe does no, a great I, job making sure that, that he, they get does the put things, into other like, programs as far as aging out and everything, keeping up with them and stuff like that. You know, it's an adaptive sports in New England is an unbelievable program. No, but like what sure I'm saying is, is, is like, I'm going to call Brian out on this. Is Brian as the coach of the Celtics going there actively to any of these adaptive sports new england like events with kids that are interested in basketball and going there and talking to them to see if they're interested in like continuing on when they age out I, of a junior program i'm already there recruiting them. but you know what i think it is joe i think we're missing infrastructure have you guys heard of the ability 360 sports complex in phoenix <laughs> yeah so basically it's a uh, it's kind of like what mass hospital school used to be but better as far as infrastructure there's rock climbing walls there's track there's any, anything it's a sports facility for people that have disabilities and we're missing that how come we can't have that in massachusetts money but it's all back to money right but we have that as a state yeah we but what we don't have is going? we don't have the understanding and the acceptance of adaptive sports as a legitimate spending right because what my point what i was getting at is we have some of the best colleges in new england and massachusetts for that matter we have the highest you know recruits of intellectual people why can't we have a sports component at a umass dartmouth or a umass amherst why can't we have a wheelchair basketball team why can't we have a wheelchair basketball team at Springfield College where basketball started and they do camps for people uh, in wheelchairs? It's, it's just nonsensical to me. Well, I mean, as we sort of reach that point of, you know, getting out there and looking for ways to increase exposure, again, that's what it all goes back to. It goes back to if people are exposed then the hope is that more money will come in but if you go you know and try to just bank on things naturally evolving to that point i don't think we're ever going to get there but you no, bring up an interesting point with what you're talking about now adam along the lines of how something like that would come about i think you'd have to get all of the programs for those people who are adaptive sports programs together okay and say this is what we want if everybody came together whether it's the celtics the blazers adaptive sports new england the uh, tennis that we have going on you have the 
uh, rowing and everything that takes place, the sailing that takes place, if you get all these people together and say, why not come up for, with a site for all of this to take place out of? That's something that needs to get done, man. Right. You know, to go and get a complete building and everything else that, boom, anybody and everybody can use. But then who's flipping the bill? What's the fees and everything else right. to keep it up? Yeah, because nothing is free. No, collaborate. But I think that hits on a big point right there. Is like a lot of people think it should be free, and like within the disabled community, for a lot of people, like people have very fixed incomes, so like they want to be able to participate in these like things sometimes for free because they they don't have the money to spend on it. So you need to find a way that like to get all those organizations together and find somebody that's going to be able to make the money happen. Yeah, so the organization's going to get charged for you know, being able to use it as headquarters and everything else, you know, there are ways to go and come up with and figure it out. But that's a, that's a big task. You yeah, know, that's, it, it's something that's not going to happen overnight. And I'm glad you volunteered to spearhead it now, Adam, and I think you should <laughs> get it done. No, it's just disheartening um, seeing what happened to Ryan. It really is because I, UConn is a perfect place for that. You know, it's, it's, uh, he kind of got strung along, but that's another story. But what you were yeah. talking about is collaboration. And I think that does need to happen, but I think it comes down to money. Like you said, maybe, maybe they're scared to collaborate because they're scared of what does this look like? Does that mean that we don't get funding anymore or we have to share funding? So it's, it's challenging for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. So I would, I would end this then on this question. What advice or what, what can we give everybody in terms of if they want to get started, you know, what's the one message that everybody in this conversation today would pass on to the public? Get started in what? What adaptive sports, you know, if we're talking about an athlete, we're we yeah, talking about a potential athlete. Yeah, if, if we're talking about potential athletes, if we're, you know, I'm giving you a platform to, you know, potentially recruit because I know we're going to have consumers that are going to listen to this and be interested afterwards. You know, what what would you tell someone who was maybe looking to get into adaptive sports what would be the best advice you could give them basically for from my standpoint short and sweet you know i just tell them to go out and find a group near them and jump in sports is for everyone it's it's that simple if you're interested in competing in a sport and everything go out there the group is out there you have to find them jump in, they'll be more than welcoming and start competing. It is that simple. Because like I said, sports are for everyone. That's my advice. I mean, I, I agree that sports are for everyone. Um, I think I have a slightly different perspective, like having grown up with a disability and having it when I was younger that like sometimes those kids that are growing up like completely different than their their counterparts 
like because of a disability don't always have the confidence to go just jump out and to like join a group like that and be like that. So in the case of like a kid like that, like what's really important is finding sort of a role model that they can get the support from like if they're, if they're doing that stuff, like, yeah, go out and find the, the, the type of thing that you want to do. But like, that's where I think those of us that have been in adaptive sports need to really step up and like be supportive of like younger kids or even an adult or whatever that might not have the confidence or like feel comfortable jumping out there that those of us that are participating don't necessarily just participate, but also work there to get more people involved. Because I, I mean, think that I, does make a difference on getting people more involved and staying involved. I mean, I can speak from the standpoint of adaptive sports, a lot of my life to somewhat come full circle with, you know, a couple of people in this room. Joe, you know that, you know, you and I had grown up together and you were my babysitter for a long time. And, you know, then there was about 10, 15 years where you were out, you know, competing and I was basically busy being an obnoxious child. And, you know, I kept up with your accomplishments and whatnot. But ultimately when I got reintroduced to wheelchair basketball after college, you know, it allowed, it allowed me to come full circle. And, you know, for us, it's almost like we never missed anything because you're still the big brother that picks on me whenever you get the chance. Um, you know, and... Deservingly uh, so, I might add. Huh? Deservingly so, I well, might I'm, add. I'm not saying that it's not. But then you got, like, Adam, who played hockey with me years ago with you know, Mass Hospital School under the tutelage of Trisha Devine. And then years later, here we are, Independence, Independence Associates. And then, you know, what can I say about Megan? Don't say she became, you know, my biggest mentor, my biggest ally, my biggest pain in the neck when it came to logistical stuff sometimes but you know that's that's all what adaptive sports is it's nothing different than a giant dysfunctional family and there's more positives that come out of it than negatives and i guess the last thing i would ask is you know for each of us what would be the accomplishment that you're the most proud of in terms of the adaptive sports world. Joe, you that somebody it? came before me that was accepted and opened the door for us, period. That would be the biggest accomplishment in adaptive sports world. Somebody did it before us. You know, we didn't do it. Our, we weren't the first to do it and get it done. It was somebody that came before me. I don't know who they are. But thank you, <laughs> Meg. You know, well, actually, I, I think I Joe's take right. That back Look. for a second. I take that back for a second. One of the people I do know, Terry Fox, was one of the first, you know, to go and run on a prosthetic across Canada and everything. I'll give him credit. Thank you. Even I mean, though he's 
like I, I think Joe's right in that respect. That that suit is the biggest accomplishment. All the people out there that like are are doing it before and paving the way for for the opportunities for the people after them. I mean, I, I think personally in mine, like one of my biggest my biggest accomplishments within the um adaptive sports world is not like any medal or anything that I've won, but like last year I put together last minute a women's team that was primarily all junior players, like literally like two weeks before nationals. And we had all these junior players playing and we won a couple of games and like we had never played before. And all of these girls had never played on an all female team and they loved it. And like, it it was, it was eye opening to them to play on like an all female team. Like they weren't like having to, to worry about like being sort of like the the sidekick to like the 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 guy players like on their junior teams and like they were thrilled and we we continued to have the junior players on our team like when we made the women's team this year but like that's my biggest accomplishment is opening the doors and letting these like younger female athletes do stuff that they didn't have an opportunity to do. Yeah, I definitely agree with Joe and Megan in the sense that sports are for everyone. And I think if, you know, anyone that's listening to this has a disability and they're looking for a community, sports are a great way to fill that void. Even if you're not athletic, hey, come sit on the bench and you don't even have to play. I mean, just come for the social aspect. I've seen people that have done that in the past, you know, uh, a lot of times that socialization is the most important thing for them. They're not getting that outside of sports, you know, so going out, it's not just on the court things, you know, Joe can attest to that. Megan can attest to that. Brian can, it's the team dinners. It's the bonding stuff. It's the going out. It's the, the laughs, the drinking, the, the goofing around practical jokes. It's the camaraderie, you know, it's not just on the court stuff. It's the lifelong friendships and all that stuff. That's the important stuff. Adam, you're totally right. Because honestly, some of the best memories I've had over the last six years are totally away from the gym. They're, they're the moments, you know, where we're in the hotel room, you know, doing spontaneous stuff like a chicken wing contest and, you know, how one night we're eating chicken wings and the next morning we all wake up smelling like garlic and we're like wait a minute somebody overloaded the chicken wings and you know or like when joe hands me the bill no 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 hands me the bill and says all right coach time to pay up and that picture is still out there on the internet somewhere i have the original i think coach should pay up um, but, but you're right. Like the, the thing that I love about like the adaptive sports is like, I moved to Virginia. So like I play on a completely different basketball team now, but I get to see all these guys at tournaments, like, and get to go travel and like see a lot of the people. And like, I don't necessarily have to go all the way back to Massachusetts to see people. I, I see them in Philadelphia and stuff. So you, you get to, to travel and like see like your friends, like all over the place. And I think you touched on briefly, like Adam, like um, 
like we've talked a lot about like competitive like adaptive sports but like there's a lot of like just recreational like like adaptive stuff and like sometimes like those of us that are super competitive tend to forget about the recreational aspect where like some people don't want to go out there and just like win and all that stuff but just want to go out there like play some some like pick up softball or whatever have like a barbecue like just get together and do things and like that is just as important if not more important than like the competitive aspect of adaptive sports well i mean i don't know about you guys but i'm real thankful for adaptive sports i'm thankful for what it's given me i'm thankful for what it's given us because all of us in this room are connected single-handedly just because of adaptive sports and the opportunity that it's given us in and out of the arena. So, you know, thanks for joining us today. Definitely. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Megan. Thanks. I definitely want to give a shout out to the sportable people down in Virginia, uh, adaptive sports, New England and wheelchair sports federation for being like, you know, the pillars of the adaptive sports world in today's society. So thanks. And if you're looking for more information on that stuff, you can check out their websites. And also I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the activities that we have going on at Independence Associates for game nights and, you know, start to get active, start to talk to people ask me and Adam questions about adaptive sports and we can point you in the right direction. Thanks, guys. Have a good one, guys. Thank you. Stay safe and healthy.